Welcome to the Teacher Squad Podcast, Episode 7. So, what's going on this week in the global teaching community, Heather? <laughs> I don't know about the community, but I'm going to talk about sour sweets that make your face all screw up. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to talk about healthy schools or toxic schools. Which one do you work in? Interesting. Um, I think during this podcast there may be some sound effects, not necessarily at the right time. Thanks, Ian. (laughs) Yeah, Ian, sort it out. And one of my heroes is on the podcast this week. Uh, He is called Nate. Uh, He's all the way from Canada. He's written a wonderful book called The Scientific Principles of Reading Instruction. I cannot wait to unpick that with him. Oh, it's such a good episode. Let's get to it straight away. Hey, Jane, have you had a good week? Oh, do you know what? I've had a really good week and I've been particularly grateful uh, that this week I've been to some really healthy schools. Uh, And I want to name check them, actually. Um, So it's Hanbury Primary School in West Bromwich. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) uh, insert the clapping hands, Ian. Bit late. We had a sound effect, didn't we, last week? It was all sick at... Forget it. Yeah, but I don't think they actually appeared on the podcast, so we just sounded <laughs> weird saying to Ian, that's late, leave them in this time, Ian. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, don't do them again then if it's rubbish and they're not shut. God, we're, we're... Hello, this is a podcast that we're not very good at. Uh, <laughs> uh, Thackley Primary School in Bradford. Oh, now these two schools, I mean, I'm not going to do a shout-out for toxic schools of have to. <laughs> You didn't come out of the podcast and stop clapping. Only me and Heather can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Who's clapping toxic schools as well? No, yeah, no, 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 no we're not. Schools. Come on, Jay. Healthy schools, yeah, because you can like this is no joke, and you can really feel it, can't you? When you're in a healthy school, you got real conversations. Sometimes they're very raw conversations. There's an honesty and there is a, a deep kindness. And um, and what I love about these sort of schools is you can tell really rubbish jokes and no one's <laughs> judging. <laughs> Go on, and, tell us one of your rubbish jokes. All right, I will then. Uh, why? Oh, not why. Bad start. <laughs> <laughs> can I just check as well? Does it match the PG rated? Yes. Yes. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. I think it might even be certificate U. What okay. do you call what do you call a spider with no legs? I don't a, know, Jay. What do you call a spider with no legs? A raisin. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbish. Oh, yeah, there was definite kindness shown there when they laughed at that joke for you. Yeah, I'll tell you what. But this kind of collective teacherly getting things done, you know. I love that. And and there's this interconnected respect for everybody. And like, we can't be experts in everything, you know, and everyone's playing to their strengths. Uh, no one's going to put me in charge of ICT. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, but I think it's about this health, this health of a school stuff. It's about 
really believing that if we work together as a team, you know, we we magnify in a positive way the impact we can have on children. And then, um, you know, I've been looking into this, you know, in terms of like the science of this. And as my dad would say, <laughs> in terms of like top of the hit parade, what what does the data say? Well, what has exceptional evidence is this kind of collective teacher efficacy that we can make a difference and it but it's the togetherness and this ameliorates any sort of negative effects of low socioeconomic status and so you know I found you you found me okay Ian's there as well it's the threesome let's just say that but Let's not say that. I know my husband's not listening, but let's not say that in case my mum listens. Come on, mum, get with the future. Uh, it's a new way of living. No, what I was going to say is, you know, um, we're a little mini team. And we've... We are. And together, you know, some of the the emails we get about the the conversations we're having to kind of, you know, you can get sort of waylaid in science, can't you? You can get a bit, you know, the 297-page report from the Education Endowment Foundation. But uh, we want to amplify, don't we, uh, important messages about teaching and schools and women yeah. and threesomes. <laughs> no, no. no. They were... <laughs> Let's stick with togetherness. I like oh. that, Jane. I like that. When you said healthy schools, I was thinking, is she on about apples on the middle of the uh, staff room table? But oh. no, they're talking about proper healthy relationships, healthy team. I love that. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. That. Yeah. Oh, I wish I wish my um, gratitude this week had as much depth and meaning as yours. I'm feeling a bit surface level. <laughs> Don't be silly. I, everything's important. Everything's feeding into, you know, self-care, our cuticles, how much we love our teaching <laughs> lives. Well, I love that I've been out and about this week and I'm going to talk about where I've been and what I've heard and who I've chatted to and everything. But I was I was really grateful for, for two things. Yeah. One, on the road. Um, so I told you last week I, was, I wasn't driving. Simon Pollard, amazing head teacher from down here in Cornwall, uh, yeah. was my chauffeur of choice. And, oh, gold star, because in the middle bit in the car, you know, you lift it up and there's a compartment. Oh, yeah. It, in there was a stash of jelly sweets. Oh, and these yes. sweets, I've never had these ones before, but I took a photograph of the wrapper because I am having them again. Colin the Caterpillar, fruit sours. Have you had oh, them? Oh, no. I'm still loving Percy Pig. I don't know if I can ah. go over to Colin yet. No, you need Colin because Colin makes you go, ooh, you know when you have a little wince at the sourness? It was yeah, good. Just what was required for a five-hour journey, five hours back. But then when I got home, what I was really grateful for, Jane, yeah, um, was my bed. Oh. Isn't your own bed the best? And and uh, you know, we have the little bit of luxury. We have a memory foam bed and memory foam pillows. And oh, oh I don't like memory foam. I don't like don't memory you? foam. 
No. I love it. I, no. I, yeah. It was good to get back to my own bed and I'm grateful for that. I don't like it. Like, it's, I always feel like with a memory foam mattress, it's a bit like, does my bum look big in this that I've left behind <laughs> in the bloody mattress? <laughs> yes, it does. There it is. Have a look. <laughs> There is nothing big about your bum, Jay. Come on. Oh, come on. I'm loving this bum compliment time. We need to make <laughs> this a regular <laughs> It's a regular feature. Shall oh. we shall we bring it back? Shall I, shall we go for sentence of the of the week? Yeah. 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 You you tasked me last week. I'd said to everybody I was off to Milton Keynes to the Open University for the OU and UKLA reading symposium all about where we're up to with reading for pleasure what now jealous jealous what? that i didn't go actually next. yeah hopefully you can come next time i think yeah i think it, they tried to start this kind of two-year cycle of doing it before covid but then you know pandemic yeah. got in the way of everything so it's, it was amazing to be invited a room full of really great people a collective of kind of researchers classroom nice. practitioners teacher trainers uh, service providers and charities and you know just a lovely collection of people yeah it was it was jam-packed to be fair a little bit overwhelming I still feel like I'm kind of processing and percolating everything lots mm. of kind of words to take in correlation causation qualitative quantitative methodology blah. it's yeah. a bit overwhelming isn't it yeah it was yeah. great but I'm I kind of have struggled to sum it up in a sentence, I feel like a lot of deep thinking and questioning has been happening. So yeah. it's a, it's a, it's not the best of sentences, but I'm kind of feeling like being an evidence. Oh, the dog's chipping in. Maybe she's got. A, wait, I think Luna's got a better uh, a better sentence than me. Have you got a better one, lovely? Um, is that being an evidence informed teacher isn't simple not simple is you know we've got no. a lot if we if we had panaceas there's the answers off you go it would be cracked we'd all be doing it it wouldn't be a problem but there's we've got to dig deep we've got to go right across the research and we can't cherry pick things you know just to fit what we want to think it's got to be real uh, and informed hasn't it so yeah. Yeah. that's that's kind of where i'm thinking but it was really good Mm. And it's taken that nuanced approach, isn't it? Like, here are some big findings, but um, let's dig a bit deeper. Where were these findings found? You know, um, you know, is it is does it relate to the age group I'm working with? Yeah. You know, can we be certain about the effect size? What does it actually mean? Um, and then when you you've always got to test things out in your classroom in your situation I mean there's so many variables isn't there you know that actually makes it so difficult but it, it's a tough one isn't it and, and and often things to do with the classroom it's like well this is where the science has led me you know it's illuminated my thinking this far but now live in this classroom is it working yeah. why isn't it working or could it work better you know it's a, it's it's such a complex cocktail of so many things and have I got a hangover was that the reason it failed <laughs> I did not have a hangover I did not there was only one drink of cider the night before in the Milton Keynes premier in good good <laughs> excited yeah. stuff 
But some of the research that they were sharing, Jane, was some of the research that we've talked about on the podcast already. So that that was really great. The book trusts were there talking about the reading influence, inf- influencers. But there was a little bit um, more on that about the extent that parental reading enjoyment has on creating generational reading habits. That was of interest. The mm. Natural Literacy Trust were there sharing. And it was interesting to hear about the trends over time and the declining trends, unfortunately, and mm. kind of, like you said, looking at specific ages and demographics there. Uh, Farsha over there sharing about the story time research, about that daily reading aloud. Um, and it was really good to hear about the impact of that project. Um, but some people there were kind of surprised that they'd found schools that are still not reading aloud every day. And it just reminds us maybe in our networks, People are doing those kind of things, but it, it isn't across the board yet. We've still got work to do on on making sure that colleagues know uh, about this research and needing to ring fence the time for it. Um, mm. oh. I, always, I always remember, um, you know, Marianne um, or Mary Ann, you know, she's American, Mary Ann Wolf, uh, you know, talks about children have to hear a word 15 times, you know, before they'll take a risk and use it themselves, you know. So actually we do have to kind of pull them into plots and tangle them into tails and make yes. sure that they um, – oh, and it's that other idea that I was reading about and I hope – oh, no, I do this now. I mean, menopausal brain might let me down, but in the Impact <laughs> uh, magazine about children have to, um, you know – meet words before we get into kind of word ownership you know and ownership is uh you know that 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 can be a quite a long trajectory for a child you know they'll yeah. they'll know it they'll know an adult can say it and what they mean by it but actually before they take it and own it that could be that could be kind of that's quite a long fragile journey for children you know and adults i would say that's for adults i say there's still words that people say or like if my daughter's reading what's that mean and you think i think i know what it means i can get the gist in that sentence but can i articulate it i think we're constantly on that yeah aren't we yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. And then obviously the words that become really sort of uh, spotlighted and uh, amplified in education. You know, uh, if I have to hear again uh, this year, you know, the fidelity, the fidelity of the approach. I'm like, oh, fidel- <laughs> fidelity. Oh, yeah. You know, but they, they, they come in vogue, don't they? They come. Oh, right. they certainly do. <laughs> they do, don't they? Oh. So. Jane, I you said on the mm. podcast last week that I had to come back with five, five nuggets, five oh, yeah. points. You'd forgotten yeah. you tasked me with that, haven't you? No. Could have got away with it and I've actually done my homework. Good girl. I've sat here and grappled with my thoughts and my thinking and thought, what what did I hear? What what have we got? So here we are. Number yeah. one. Yeah. There's a correlation in decline in children choosing to read in their free time and a decline in reading attainment. They're mm. not not a great one to start with. Things are going down and they're going down together. So, you know, let's uh, let's read into that. Number two, yeah. having the right choice of engaging books available is really important. I think that one stands out when funding is a big issue, yeah. uh, but, but it is vital and schools need to figure out how they're going to do that. 
Um, or, or, or the other thing, sorry to interrupt Heather, is that teachers are just putting their hand in their own purse all the time, aren't they? And buying books for the reading corner. And uh, reading corners are lovely in schools, I see, you know, like the curated mini library for this year group, my class. But, you, you know, you just the teacher's just like, God, you know, my husband's going to leave me if I buy any more books. Yeah, this is so, so true. And it, sh- it should be on the on the budget you know yeah. every year and i get it when people are struggling to buy pencils um but there is evidence out there to to you know to nudge us in that direction number 3 yeah time for reading is so important as is time for informally talking about books so helen hendry and lucy rodriguez lee and from the ou rfpt shared some of their research on book talk with the early years right. and there was a nice little bit of um about some friendships uh starting through book talk and how yeah. some some little dinky pupils were connecting through their chats about books i thought that was really nice mm. number four there are links between children engaging in reading for pleasure or volitional reading, choosing of their own accord to read, and positive well-being, which fits nicely with your healthy school. Yeah. Um, And then number five, the identity of a teacher as a reader or not as a reader is interesting and something to explore further. So Emma Rogers was there sharing her PhD study that she'd done with training teachers on investigating how they saw themselves as readers mm. um, and, and how we need to see ourselves uh, as readers, uh, as teachers. Um, really interesting use of data visualisation in that study. Um, and and Emma's, Emma would like to come on the podcast so we can unpick that one uh, yeah, a little right. bit further. Yeah, yeah loads, loads of stuff discussed about children's book choices and adding challenge what is sustained reading and children's stamina and reading in the digital age i mean we've got so much more that we need to figure out it would be interesting to know what the teacher squad Mm. think yeah we should be researching or researching more of what they'd like to hear about and maybe their thoughts on what it means to be an evidence-informed teacher Whose yeah. responsibility is it to do the research, read it, disseminate it? What yeah. you know, figure figure it out. It'd be interesting to hear people's perspectives. Oh, yeah. and there's a new way they can let us know, isn't there, Jay? Oh, there is. This is exciting. We have got now an official, bona fide, bold and underlined new uh, podcast email. So mine <laughs> is. <laughs> I did the sound effect because I knew Ian wouldn't be there in time. <laughs> no, it's on Facebook, babe. You got no chance. Uh, so yeah, my um, my email. Hey. Uh, timing is always a little bit wang in that department. <laughs> tell, tell them the email address, Jane. Tell them okay, how they email us. it is Jane. Plain Jane. No, why don't you dare slip a Y into it, Jane? at the teacher squad podcast.com we're going worldwide heather we didn't do .co.uk we're a .com guess yeah. what yours is guess oh let me think could it be heather yes at the teacher squad podcast.com sure is yeah nice and easy folks 
but we, you, you're finding us anyway. I mean, I like this as well. You send us loads of emails and Heather reads them and you send me some. <laughs> And I forward them on to Heather. But now you can really get us, corner us and tell us what you're interested in and what you want to talk about. And if you've got something you want to say and put on the agenda, you know, we're really up for that. Um, so, yeah, exciting. Yeah. What What's your sentence then, Jane? Have you managed to sum up your thinking this week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really have. And it's this. Um Teachers who make their thinking visible are better teachers. Now, um, we kind of, this is again linked back to the science of learning. Uh, Collins, Brown and Hollam uh, talk about this as cognitive apprenticeship. And um, I always have a little joke, but I'm the only one laughing at this. Another <laughs> another crap joke. Um, you know, Instead of calling him Rose and Shine, I like to call him Rise and shine. <laughs> ah. Rise and shine's principles. So rise and shine um, has been talking about this for a long time. But how I see it is this. You're like, when I'm teaching, right, AI world. Luna, be quiet and listen. In AI world. <laughs> She's got something to say about these sentences. I don't know whether I'm letting the dog in again. Sorry about that. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Um, in AI world, I want a big fat PHAT bubble floating above my head or actually floating above all teachers' heads. Um, you know, like I'm sure Google Classroom can sort this out. Um, so that when I'm trying to explain something, children can see the invisible. You know, the process of thinking of course, it's unseen, but what we need to do when we're teaching is make it really explicit and think out loud so they can almost see the smaller steps of how a task is performed, you know. And, and we're very good at that in maths, I think, you know, yeah. really good at that in maths. Um, we're all right in writing, but... Oh, in reading, I don't think we're very good at that. You know, you can you see the reader's brain? You know, I want you to hear and see my hard thinking, you know, giving children a window to our minds, uh, you know, like why we're doing certain things, yeah. you know. And um, I, I don't know, I suppose in writing, we're not too bad, but I just sometimes think it can be turned up a little bit you know when we're modeling um rather than going oh I'm changing that word I just think it sometimes even needs ex explaining you know I'm changing this word terrified because it's a bit too intensely negative and I need a more subtle softer version something with less negative intent so I'm slicing out terrified and then I'm putting in instead something like on edge jittery she felt on edge jittery and then it's that balance isn't it well like you're boring them it's going on too long so it's always that have you still got them do they know what they're watching and um always kind of making that judgment as a teacher you know and you need to plan for that at first don't you i think some people some teachers get really adept at that it just becomes part of your patter 
yeah. and you can do it on the cuff. But, mm. it, you know, when you're, you know, first in the classroom, first few years, yeah. you, you still up, or when you've shifted to a new text that you've not used before or whatever, you, you need to give, that is what planning's about, not about making fancy PowerPoints. Yeah. Get that they can help you plot your lesson. But actually it's that thinking, isn't it, of kind of... Yeah what steps am I going to take yeah. to get the children from this point to that point so that yeah. they can do it of their own accord yeah. and in their own way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, we're going to talk to Nathaniel Hansford um, later, but um, he's a guy who's really interested into, uh, interested into, can you speak? No. Interested <laughs> in... <laughs> like effect sizes and he talks about you know uh things that have got strong evidence and model comprehension is a really interesting concept to me you know that idea that um you know when you read are we helping children look inside the reader's brain you know are we showing children what is not observable unless we make it observable, things like when you read how to summarise or when you read how you're left with unanswered questions, you don't know all the answers yet, or what can you be certain of? What is emerging? What is a big idea? What's a small idea? You know, and bringing your thoughts into the open, you know, so it's a bit like, um, you know, like a festoon of lights like a necklace of noticing you know under the like the gloom and the the, the foggy thoughts you know a beacon that is like you're gonna really show kids how to read for meaning you know yeah hard yeah well, it's gonna be an interesting guest and uh, yeah. it's, it's gonna be beaming in all the way from canada Great. So let's let's hope we've got our time zones right, Jane. Yeah. Neither, neither of us are math specialists. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm really working hard on being an advocate for girls and maths. So I am not a math specialist, but I'm right behind those numbers. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there. <laughs> Shall we invite him in then? Oh yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. We are so excited to have Nate Hansford here and um, I found his book um, and I'm going to just tell everybody what his book's called, The Scientific Principles of Reading Instruction. Um, Nate, I'm going to be honest, it's a heavy read, uh, but I loved it and uh, Heather and I, yeah, Heather and I are uh, a team because we both love written words and uh, we're both actually on a journey uh, looking into the science beneath them. So we were very interested uh, by your work. And then again, I was very interested uh, to see that you were on a spelling conference uh, recently because I'm also interested in um, uh, the power of spelling and, um, you know, was getting excited this week with words that begin with uh, the letters sn you know like languages fossil poetry and we know that all you know these words like sneeze and snout and sniff <laughs> and snuffle all have like this this onomatopoeic 
nose sound. But anyway, I digress. But um, <laughs> I'm so excited by reading and spelling. And uh, we're delighted to have you here. Uh, I know, Heather, you want to specifically talk about, um, you know, Nate's drive and some of the things he's interested in. Uh, what did you want to ask him? Uh, hi, Nate. Welcome to the Teacher Squad podcast. It really is great to have you here. And Jane is totally going to geek out because she's very, very excited after having read your book. Um, so here in the UK, the phrase, the science of reading, may be not as well known as it is uh, where you are in, in Canada and over in the US. So could you just give us a, a brief idea of, of what that means? Yeah, I mean, it's a, the science of reading isn't really an approach or a program or any specific uh, type of instruction, the science of reading is just this idea that there's this body of scientific literature out there, the research on the topic of reading instruction that we can rely on when we make instructions, um, instructional choices. I think it sort of used to go by a different name. I think the science of reading is sort of really a rebranding of a term that already exists, and that's evidence-based instruction. So when people say the science of reading, what they're really referring to is the idea that they, they want to make evidence-based reading instruction decisions. Brilliant. I think that puts us on the same page because I would say over in, here in the UK, that's what we would say, evidence-informed practice. Um, brilliant. Thank you for that. So in terms of us kind of getting on the same page, Nate, how how would you explain uh, this sense of kind of demystifying the process of particular, let's say, reading comprehension? Because in terms of it, like, let me give you a bit of background. In the UK, I would say we have sorted phonics. You know, there is, we're, we're really good at phonics and we've been good at phonics for a very long time. And there is no doubt, like we were ahead of the curve um, around um, understanding phonics from about the year 2000. And um, teachers then are kind of just judging around that, deciding almost what schemes to use, but they're all based on kind of a systematic approach. And we've been great at that for a long time. But I think where we still need to learn more is around kind of reading comprehension. What can yeah, you tell you know, us about I, what you found out? Yeah. Yeah, I think reading comprehension is really tough because it's very complex when you look at the research on it. It's not one skill. There's no such thing as a reading comprehension skill. It's a synthesis of a very large number of skills. And I, I think part of the issue is that there's been this drive to oversimplify the, the instructional practices for reading comprehension or to oversimplify the instructional practices that are supposed to increase reading comprehension. I, I do see sometimes people almost want to give this like magic answer. You know, in, uh, I, I, I understand the UK perspective, like, well, if we teach the kids how to read, they'll comprehend. And I think that actually makes sense to some extent in the very early primary grades, because in primary grades, they, they often get narrative texts that are very literal and have like no abstract meaning. Um, and I think that becomes less and less efficient as students get older um, for two reasons. One, we start to get um, very complex literary texts like Shakespeare. You can decode all the words you want. Uh, is Shakespeare still tough to understand? Um, yes. In part because there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of metaphors, a lot of simile. There's a lot of imagery, foreshadowing. There's always complex um, abstract thoughts going on into the play. So it makes it very difficult to understand off of just a literal ability to read. 
Um, and then the other component that we have to understand too is that um, reading comprehension is background knowledge dependent. Um, there's a famous study done, I think it was in the 80s. I might be forgetting the specific date where they gave students a text about baseball. Um, and they had students uh, try to understand what the text said. When, then when they, they tested them on it, they showed that the students didn't understand the story about baseball. Then they taught them about baseball terminology and vocabulary, and they showed that suddenly they could understand the story, um, which has been often used to, to suggest that maybe background knowledge is the primary um, component of reading comprehension. Although personally, I would argue that there's a lot of components to it. And I think it's a mistake to try to put any one component on a pedestal and say, okay, this is it. This is the cure to comprehension. We're going to teach this now. Now our kids will be able to comprehend. I don't, I don't think it works that way. In, the, in Canada, which is where I live, I think we had for a very long time the opposite approach to England. There was very little decoding instruction. There was very little phonics instruction. And they really wasn't an explicit instruction for reading in general in the sense of, like, we're going to teach kids how to read. Instead, the focus was on teaching kids to construct meaning, which is this constructivist idea. And it's really part of this balanced literacy approach that, well, students don't necessarily need to know how to read each individual word on a page if they can, you know, find the meaning from the story. Um, and I think some of this was uh, driven by philosophy. They, they really wanted to um, embrace this idea that, well, if it says horse and the kid says pony because they looked at the picture, is that really wrong? It's basically the same thing. Um, but I think, you know, part of the problem is that it's sort of backwards thinking to think I can teach kids how to understand without teaching kids how to, to read. You really do need to be able to read in order to do comprehension. So I think that's something that England has really had down, um, over say Canada for a long period of time. Now I know our PISA scores tend to be higher than, than yours. However, there was a, an interesting study by, uh, the International Dyslexia Association here in Canada that showed that. Well, basically, we kind of fudged our numbers a little. That might be why we <laughs> uh, ended up below you guys or above you guys in the PISA scores. So I don't know how reliable Canadian PISA scores are. Dodgy. God. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like we, we have done phonics well for so long now and we're reaping the benefits of that. Uh, but of course, in Canada, I think what you do well that we do less well is your teachers seem to be a bit less stressed than we are. <laughs> oh, way less stressed. And that, to be honest, I, I do wonder if that leads to some, some better teaching. I know when I worked in England, I worked like 60, 70 hours a week as a teacher. And that's just unheard of in Canada, if I'm being honest. That's that's just not a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we just have the government sending us reports on a Sunday saying that we need to have more work-life balance. Uh, but it's 300 pages long, and we've got to find time to read it. <laughs> so I don't know how full this is. Yeah, um, have you thought about self-care? Is that is that the answer? Oh, we, we, we are talk about right. nothing but self-care on this Teacher Squad podcast. We are all about the self-care. Yeah, Hopefully, yeah. somebody uh, up there is listening to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nate, um, can I talk to you about about fluency? So yes, we we have got phonics to an extent sorted here, but it's kind of something that um, we as a profession are kind of not quite got sorted and kind of knowing when does fluency begin, how do we do that? And I know in your book you talk about repeated reading. Can you tell us a bit about your thoughts on fluency yeah well i think 
you know, we should start by just saying what fluency is. So it's the ability to, to read accurately, quickly, and smoothly, uh, which can be um, referred to as prosody. Um, and I think fluency really comes into play when the students can decode the words, but they're not necessarily reading with fluency. You'll hear it. You'll see a kid read you a text, and they'll be like, the cat ran over the dog. <laughs> you hear them sort of reading that disjointed face. And even in older grades, you hear it too, where, you know, they are, they can, they're not making mistakes. They're reading accurately, but it's really slow. And there's just this lack of um, inflection and tone in their voice. And it's sort of um, painful to listen to uh, <laughs> um, the student read it that way. Um, and to me, that's when fluency instruction should start uh, being the main focus. And, I, you know, I think there's sort of a step ladder to reading instruction that you can clearly see. In the sense that, you know, once students can learn how to decode, well, then we can start really focusing on fluency. And once they're fluent, we can really start working on comprehension. But, you know, with everything, you know, uh, there's a danger of oversimplifying because we can work on all of those things at the same time, too. We can work on fluency in kindergarten. We can work on fluency in grade eight. And those things, I I think they have a synergistic value. Um, But I think there is a point where it should be your focus. And for me, like grade four, five, six, I think that's really maybe in grade three is probably that's going to be your main focus whereas you know prior to that i think your main focus is likely going to be word accuracy and after that it's probably going to be more about comprehension um there's a lot of different uh fluency approaches out there and i i think you're going to need to use a mixture like i will and i'll talk about repeated reading i think it is the most uh, um, evidence-based uh instructional tool we can use to improve fluency however you know silent reading really is a fluency um, piece, even though you're not practicing the prosody, you're not practicing the smoothness part. Um, guided reading, which is a very popular thing in balanced literacy circles, is a um, fluency piece. Reader's theater is a reading piece. It's really just, we need, fluency instruction to me really just means we're giving students practice time, reading a text, and you know, especially giving time to practice that text out loud. And there's been a lot of different things that have been studied for uh, reading instruction in terms of fluency, but the thing that has the the best evidence in research is this thing called repeated reading. And I, I will say it's a bit of a weird thing to wrap your head around because it's so um, unintuitive in a way, in the sense that like nobody wants to listen to someone read the same thing three or four times in a row. Um, but and students definitely don't want to read the same thing three or four times in a row. They want to read a text and move on to the new text. Um, but the research shows that students make a lot of progress if we give them more than one attempt to, to read something, both in that moment with that particular piece and as a transfer effect. And that's a, you know, a common criticism you'll hear of repeated reading, of getting a student to read the same text over and over again, is that, um, well, that's not going to transfer to a new text. They're going to get good at reading that particular piece, but yeah. they, it won't transfer. But that, that's actually just categorically false. There's been a lot of research on this and we, we can see that there is a transfer effect and it is quite large. So um, Interesting. I think the, the hard part about it is it is boring. Like repeat, I, <laughs> I can't get away from that. Like repeated reading is boring. And I, in my own practice, I've made it like an instructional part of my day. That's because I'm a teacher. Uh, uh, so I usually do it for five or 10 minutes a day tops. 10 minutes is the tops and, you know, five minutes is the minimum. And I think, you know, it's been especially shown to be impactful for students with learning disabilities. So if you're a teacher who's working um, with a struggling reader, 
I think it, it's a really good idea to include that as part of your instructional routine when you meet with that student. Uh, most most students who get diagnosed with dyslexia seem to benefit the most from systematic phonics instruction, but adding in some repeated reading into that lesson is a good idea. Just like adding in some vocabulary instruction is a good idea for that student and um, some phonemic awareness. In that five, 10 minutes, are they, is it just like a short extract that they're reading over and over? Is there a no, kind of sweet spot there's, of how much? Yeah, there's some like fluency workbooks out there. I, I've actually, I'm in the process of developing one. I'm going to release it free. I'm not going to sell it. Um, but I, I think really it almost doesn't matter. It's, okay. it's almost irrelevant what text you're doing, as long as it's roughly around students' instructional ability. Um, yeah. And I know that that term has um, some backlash against it, but we want to read, uh, we want to get the students a piece where they're not sitting there decoding every single word or asking for support on every single word. But we also yeah. don't want a, a piece where the student is completely fluently reading it anyways, because that sort of defeats the purpose. We want to be stretching their ability, um, identifying new words. So I really like poetry for repeated reading yeah. um, because it has a flow and a rhythm and that I think helps to build the prosody. Um, and another thing I think when you're doing a repeated reading, you might as well build some comprehension into it, some comprehension practice. So, uh, picking a text where you can have some comprehension questions you give them afterwards, um, is a good idea. Like why not give students that practice? And I, you know, I know there's some resistance to giving, um, comprehension questions that is sort of growing as of recent. It's sort of because the idea that you can't teach comprehension, but we do have specific comprehension skills or questions, I should say, that we know from research, if we give students practice with those questions, they get better answering them. So for mm -hmm. particular main idea and summarizing being the two most important. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to teach a unit on summarizing or a unit on main idea, um, but giving students practice with different types of questions over a course of a year, um, I think is really good because I think one part that people miss about comprehension is that... Um, it's not just a reading skill. It's a communication skill. You know, they're creating a mental model of what they've read or what you've read to them. And they're yeah. trying to find a way to communicate it to you. Yeah. And I think sometimes students uh, do poorly on comprehension, not because they can't read it or understand it, but because they have a poor job communicating it. And sometimes they're almost like, what do you mean? What, did, uh, what is the summary? You just read it with me. Why, why are you asking me for a summary? <laughs> yeah. You know, and. I tend to teach a community, like a communication process for it, either for writing or orally too. like, okay, when you, uh, you know, give a summary, these are the types of details you should give. These are the types of details you should admit. If you're going to yeah. talk about main idea, you should evidence your opinion. You should have yeah. an, you know, an example from the text. You should be able to talk about specific points and draw them back to you, what you're trying to get across. And it's, you got to teach that communication piece too. It's not just a reading activity. Yeah, I agree with that, Nate. I think children find it really hard, don't they, to kind of get to the nub or the, the heart of the big stuff. And, um, you know, years ago when I used to work with English subject leaders and we'd analyse um, year six test papers, we literally could go down the comprehension you know, um, paper. Uh, it's a national paper that we give to children when they're uh, age 10 and 11 and you could identify these questions as um, zoom in questions or zoom out questions and zoom in is things like what do you think skittishly means and kids are just have a, 
a damn good guess. But when it was like the zoom out questions, what's the main idea? Or can you summarize this? Or what's the theme or the message? Like they would be awful at it. And, um, you know, learning is about kind of grappling with the big stuff first before you kind of get smaller in your thinking and I think you're right kids need a lot of help with that but going back to your point you made about repeated reading is kind of the the research around that is ironclad you said something really quickly that I just want to pick up on you said readers theatre can you just tell Mm -hmm. me what that means Oh, well, reader's theater is not something I've, I've done a lot of research on myself. I, yeah. I believe it's just a, um, like a, a set of, a set protocol. And I, I'm going to, someone who's done reader's theater is going to tell me I'm wrong on this, but. No, uh, hey, we're gentle, we're gentle. For, you go for it. Yeah. Okay. So reader's theater is a set protocol where the students like read a story, like play. And then each person who's at the table is assigned a character to, to speak their parts, I believe, yeah. or to speak that page. Um, yeah. And they just go through a story or a play and that way. And it's, it's just, it's at a table yeah. um, and it, it's sort of bringing a social element into the learning. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we can dismiss the social element either. You know, like reciprocal reading is another comprehension um, methodology for teaching yeah. and comp- reading comprehension. And uh, it's got a social component to it. And it, it has really large results in research. It's actually meta-analyses specific to just this type of, you know, instructional method, really high outcomes. Yeah. And something that, you know, people pointed out to me when I, I, I reviewed that was that maybe it's the social component. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's largely strategy instruction. Yeah. It's largely focusing on reading as a, a skill or comprehension of skill. But, you know, I, I recently uh, submitted a meta-analysis on computer-based learning interventions um, for peer review. And we found that computer-based interventions on average just did a terrible job of teaching kids how to read. Yeah. And I wow. wondered if... Because in, in theory, I think a computer should do better because yeah. we can program the computer to be an expert. It doesn't need, you know, it, it, like, and literacy instruction is incredibly complex when you start to go through all the minutia of it, both from a linguistic perspective and from a, a development perspective and a learning perspective. Mm. So it's very complicated. I, I've been studying this for, for years now, and I, I still feel like I have lots to learn. Yeah. And uh, you can just program that into a computer. It should be an absolute expert. And then you can give it adaptive tools so that it can individualize instruction to students specific needs. And then you can give it games and bells and whistles and flashy lights and lights and sounds. And you would think it would do better, but on average it does far worse than a a human teacher. And I wonder if it's that social piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, think that the whole point of our jobs as teachers is to get to that a place that's kind of deep reading, you know, and, and deep reading is, you know, we want them to uh, emotionally engage with it, have empathy, be critical thinkers, personally respond to things, um, you know, and Heather knows and Heather recently, I mean, we we're always talking about uh, book talk. It's, it's about reading enjoying it and then digging deeply into it and having conversations around it and that your thoughts about it like your book your book has pushed my thinking on about reading you know I I'm going beyond your words that you're giving me through your research um to kind of make it have meaning uh for me but then we can together talk about it and that gives kind of deepness in thinking um in the UK we're very interested. I don't know if this is a thing in Canada, just be interested on your take on it. Uh, we're really interested in echo reading, which is um, repeated reading that is 
we're finding has a lot of meaning for younger children where the the teacher will um you know very pointedly kind of show the children how they get in their mouth around words it might be a little bit exaggerated but uh, it's got good expression changing of volume emphasis and tone but we almost like slice it into sentences and get children to kind of mirror you know not for long you know just maybe a little paragraph you know with us kind of sentence by sentence and this seems to be kind of a bit of a sweet spot for kind of engagement and and connection with words is that happening in canada echo reading I've not actually heard of that before this moment. To me, that sounds like it's a form of prosody instruction. You know, you're yeah, trying to is. teach them the pronunciation and smoothness. Yeah. Um, I, I have mixed feelings about that, actually, to be honest, because it, it's also kind of related to um, articulation training. Like there's become this within, I think, the science reading movement. There's been uh, a sudden interest in our articulation training where we like show students mouth pictures and we try to show them, well, what does your mouth look like as you say the sound? Uh, and that's one thing I'm a little skeptical of. And maybe it's my bias because I was never taught that way. It looks very strange as the outsider looking in, seeing people being like. Yeah, it's probably you know, not as technical as that. It's probably just, you know, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, you know, like just, and that the children have a chance to. Oh, that did sound you. very engaging to be fair. I, I say yeah. you too. I, say I was, you, I was stuck in, I was like, and what happens next? Yeah. <laughs> a oh, she's wolf. a good reader aloud. <laughs> I, I, so I was, I was in your waiting room listening to you guys record before this and I, I was listening to you tell the story of the donut. And yeah. I was completely engaged in that donut story, to be honest. Yeah. Just don't eat Arnie. I'll, I'll be really upset. Um, so um, one other thing I'm going to ask you, um, you know, we're beginning to learn what you do uh, well in Canada, what we're doing uh, a little bit better on who's, uh, who's fudging the data, who's been naughty, <laughs> who's good. <laughs> But Heather, uh, particularly, I know you're interested in uh, and has been flying the flag for reading for pleasure for absolutely years. Uh, you you want to ask uh, Nate something about that? Yeah, I, I don't know it, the term reading for pleasure. Do you do you use that readily, or do you talk about children's uh, volitional reading? And I kind of want to know just your thoughts on on the balance, really, of kind of between how we get children to read but then how we make sure that the children actually have time to read and that they become readers who choose to do it yeah you know i think that's a a really difficult question because it's almost like a philosophical question and in canada we definitely had all the focus was on the joy of reading as, as i would call it for a long time and i think you know after the nrp report came out in 2000 the there was this idea that well okay, systematic phonics instruction is better for teaching kids how to read. Um, and whole language instruction, in the, you know, brings the joy of reading into the, the classroom. So we need to find the best of both. And I think, and that's where balanced literacy as an idea supposedly came from. But really, we kept like 95% of whole language and made the adoptive 5% of systematic phonics. So <laughs> it was really still this idea of like constructing meaning from text without necessarily teaching kids how to read words. And I, I, and not to say that no one was teaching kids how to read words, but um, there was that was the focus. And if you if you shift, like if we if you go through my book, my book has I, I think, have Nate. I don't think Heather has been as. 
Dylan, I've had it for a few days and I've read a, quite a bit, but I've not hugged it as much as Jay. Well, that's okay. I, I was just going to say that, you know, my book provides a sort of in-depth explanation, I think, of all the types of instruction you can provide in a classroom that are evidence-based. And you can get, you can go through a, a rabbit hole and a wormhole of that. You know, you can start to go through so many things. You can create ex- explicit instruction systematical routines for every single component of literacy throughout every day. And I, I think that would be somewhat of a mistake. Um, someone might might call me a heretic here, but um, there is definitely a balance to be found. And I, I think the real, my big problem with balanced literacy as a, a instructional movement was that it wasn't balanced. It was, it just, we sort of, said, yeah, yeah, we'll teach, we'll teach the kids word reading. But, you know, what really matters is the joy of reading. And it was a lot of silent reading. And I, I'm going to be honest, I was a kid who, who learned how to read pretty easily. Um, although I did have phonics instruction um, myself. And I remember that. But, you know, I loved silent reading time. And my school teachers, we probably did like 40 minutes of silent reading a day. Um, I think... In, and I, that was something, and, you know, as a kid, I read like uh, a book every two days, like a novel. And that was just something I really enjoyed doing. But like, if you have a student who can't read, who doesn't know how to read, I don't think there's any benefit for them in that time. Because what they really do is they, they sit in the book and they pretend to read and they flip pages so that nobody's drawing attention to them. So I think yeah. we got to be really careful. And so some of this, to my mind, is just um, time. So if you're in a grade two class, do I want to spend a lot of time in a day? on a silent reading probably not if i'm in a, a grade seven eight class where you know um i would hope that most of them if the instruction was was good should be reading at least semi-professionally do i think it makes more sense to have more silent reading for them yeah i do yeah. um and um in part of that i i do see that as a fluency instructional piece if they have proficient decoding and they're reading texts that are you know at a reasonable level of difficulty for them I think they are going to slowly benefit because they're going to decode words. Then they're going to commit those words to memory and they're going to start to read those words with automaticity. And then they're going to see them in context and they're going to learn vocabulary. And we know that there are most vocabulary is not learned through explicit instruction. There's 2 million words in the English language. And that was the real problem with whole language in the first place was that, you know, you cannot teach students how to read 2 million words. You don't, if you, if you spent all day, every day trying to teach them words, you can't. So you have to give them tools to decode unfamiliar words. So that's what phonics is for. But by contrast, we can't say we're going to give you the tools to decode those two million words, and then we're going to memorize the meaning of them. <laughs> uh, so we have to provide the context for them to, to do um, learn some vocabulary implicitly. And I think read-alouds are a really important part of that too. Um, but you can't, you definitely do have to find a balance. And I, I do think in the traditional context, at least what was in Canada, it was too much. We had way too much silent reading. You know, I would say like grade three on, we were, we're talking it probably 30 minutes a day in most classrooms minimum for silent reading. And you had probably some classrooms that were doing more. You know, I've heard of teachers doing up to an hour a day of silent reading. That's a lot of instructional time to give yeah. up. And yeah, I, I think that, that, part of it is, yeah, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, if they're doing an hour of silent reading, they've got an easy ride, to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well and, stress levels are lower over there, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I think you can just build it into part of a literacy block, though, rather than saying, like, I'm going to have um, this block is my silent reading block or this period is my silent reading period. I think it makes more sense to be like this section of my literacy block you will get some time to do 
some salary. My last question, Nate, uh, I hope this doesn't put you on the spot too much. Um, who are your educational heroes? Because I think after you writing this sort of PhD-esque uh, summary of kind of effect sizes for me has really influenced my thinking in developing the reading unit plans. But I just wondered, you know, who do you admire out there in the educational world? Oh, there's so many. Um and, you know, most of what my book does is it summarizes other people's research. It's not original research. It's a summary and interpretation of other people's research that I've tried to write for the sake of teachers. I don't have a PhD. I'm not a professional researcher. I'm actually starting to try and do some original research myself. And that's been a fun journey. But, um, you know, the, the first one that comes to mind is Dr. Timothy Shanahan. Um, yeah. He's been a, sort of an inspiration to me in, in terms of his writing. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him on my, my own podcast. Uh, I just don't know anyone else who can speak to so much of the literature with such confidence um, and on so many different topics. And, he, you know, he also one thing I really like about him is that he grounds everything he says in citations and in research. You don't just say uh, and I think that's a problem. Even PhDs do it. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll give their opinion and they'll state as fact and they won't really present a lot of compelling evidence for it. And then they'll they'll really believe it and they'll make an emotional argument. And I, I, I think if we want to call something science, we have to stick to what can we prove. Um, and I, I try hard in my own writing to, to remove the emotional language if I can, which maybe doesn't make for the most compelling book. But at the same time, I'm trying. It's my goal is to be accurate. Um, so Shannon, Shannon's a real um, hero to me. I would say Linnea Erie. Um, and to be fair, I've never heard her name pronounced aloud, so I might be butchering the pronunciation. But she's actually uh, you know, a colleague, Dr. Shannon. And he often cites her as being the real expert on um, phonics instruction. So I think she is uh, just a researcher out there who's just really pushed um, phonics instruction. Another one for me is um, Dr. John Hattie, obviously, because, you know, a lot of his research was directly inspired the research I've been doing. And yeah. he's the one who made me realize why meta-analysis was such a powerful tool. Yeah. And the last one I'm going to say is kind of a strange contrast because it's uh, um, Dr. Dylan Williams. And, uh, or Dylan Williams, sorry, not Dylan Williams. Uh, uh, and it, I say it's just a funny contrast because he's very critical of meta-analysis and he's very critical of John Hattie. And even more ironically, they just wrote a book together. So if you're looking for a book to read, definitely check out the book to read uh, that they wrote together because I think they're both brilliant. And yes, they have very they different are. opinions. So yep. I'm very confused how they wrote one. But he's yep. just such a, a brilliant scholar and he's so yep. skeptical of everyone and everything and so critical yep. that you can't help but learn. You might yeah. get offended because he yeah. might ruin your perception of an idea or a belief, yeah. but um, he's just such a, a sharp, sharp tool. Yeah, and I think um, going back to um, Hattie, uh, you know, and his when his book first came out about effect sizes, I don't even think the teaching community were ready for it. Uh, but actually, um, you know, I think your work as well as sort of brought it to the surface. So, Nate, you've been so inspirational um i actually can't rave about this book enough the scientific principles of reading instruction and if you care about um you know ensuring kids in the lowest socio-economic situations uh can get mobile and uh find uh and have an impact on the future of their own lives we know it's reading and nate will summarize all the science for you thank you nate it's been an absolute joy thank you nate thank you for having me on your podcast
Well, he's passionate, isn't he, about promoting evidence-based reading, thinking, love that. It was really good. And I think you just about got away with not being too big of an Uber fan and uh, geeking out too much. Shut <laughs> up. You didn't embarrass yourself. <laughs> <laughs> really good. To... Yeah, love that. The wonder of words. I love this bit, Heather. You just captivate me when you do this. And uh, I'm really interested what you've chosen this week after being at the Milton Keynes Reading Conference. I'm sure it had a sexier title than that. <laughs> it, was a, it was a symposium. I knew it, I knew it was good. Shall I, shall I say it really like ASMR? It was a symposium. Oh, God, that is good. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, woo, excited. I thought we have done quite a few readings from middle grade novels. We've Mm -hmm. had picture books. We've had Mm -hmm. poetry. Mm -hmm. So when we've been thinking about um, moving from phonics to fluency into the comprehension, I thought there's 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 a chunk, there's a stage there where it's really, really important and actually, it's not always the easiest to find those best early chapter books, that stage when fluency is developing and growing, and it's really, really important. So I've chosen a book from the Stripes Publishing Colour Fiction series. Mm. Um, this I've one's seen called, them. Oh, they're a lovely series. So they are full colour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but text with them so you get that sense of a shift from the picture book really kind of, you know, uh, scaffolding our, the, the reader's way through. Yeah. Uh, so this one's called Two Sides. It's by Polly Ho Yen and illustrated by Binny Taylor. And Binny actually is going to be on our one of our virtual events in, uh, next month. Um, and it's about two friends called Lula and Lenka. Aww. And these two girls are a little bit opposite and a little bit different. And and that reminded me of me and you, Chalk and Cheese, Yin and Yang, and that we could still be good friends. Um, So... But can I just say before you read that, I I, I think that's a real issue, isn't it? That that year three time, it's not always year three, but it can be the year three. Like, how do we take them over that bridge you know, to being more fluent, more independent. And we can often lose them at year three. And it, and again, it's about curating books that are going to work for them at that time. Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. So I'm going to read two little chunks. And the first bit is about their differences. Oh. Although we've been friends for our whole lives, sometimes people say that we're like chalk and cheese or pens and peanuts or penguins and pencils, or any two things that are quite different from each other. Summer is my favourite time of year, but Lenka prefers it when it's very cold and the sky is completely white. Lenka doesn't really like Hen, she's more of a cat person, but I think he's the best creature in the world and I'm really messy. Sometimes you can't even see the floor of my bedroom because there's stuff piled up all over it. But Lenka is super tidy. She always puts things away and makes her bed in the morning. Lenka 
prefers bare trees. She says she likes the shape of the branches with no leaves on them. But I like trees green and shady. It's never mattered, though, us being different, because we're best friends. Oh. Luna's enjoying the reading the, today. Yeah. So Hen is the is a dog in the in the in the book, by the way. So the two that. friends have a little bit of a falling out, yeah. um, and they have a bit of an issue, and it's only a small issue, uh, but it it divides them for a little bit, which is which is quite sad. But in the end. They get back together. She said, get on with it. Get on with it, mummy. Read that book. It's the funniest thing. I'd been playing the day that everything went wrong over and over in my head. And it always made me upset. But now it just seems so silly. I can't believe that I fell out with Lula over something so stupid. We smile at each other. And all those days of not talking and feeling lonely fade away. From now on, I say, as we swing on the rope, the most important thing is that we stick. But Lula finishes the sentence before I can. Together. Oh, you come full circle, Heather, with uh, togetherness. I know. How nice is that? Yeah. So it's a nice book. And it's got nice opportunity for talking about friendships and being different and how we can resolve things and not let things fester as well. So, yeah, yeah. check out that. Yeah, the repairing. So do you make your bed every morning? Uh, no, I am the, the messy one, yeah. I knew so. that, I knew that. <laughs> it's, it's the creative brain, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm creative and I can still be asked to make my bed, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so if my mum is listening, she is really going to side with you because she's yeah. been trying for 40-odd years. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, actually, it was my mum that trained me. She goes, you're going to have a better day if you make your bed. I don't know about that, but, yeah, thanks, mum. Thanks, Maureen. Okay. Well done, mums. What's, what's your wonder of okay. words, Jay? So um, I was just thinking, uh, well, I don't know. I've never really asked you this. Have you got, Heather, a top ten? Top ten books? No. Like top a, ten what? It's like a top ten if you weren't happily married list. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? One of them I top tens. I don't, I don't think there's ten, but there's probably a few. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want this to be misinterpreted is, as, you know, objectification. This is just like admiration on my part okay. because on my top ten. Who is it? Who is it? Well, that it's always authors uh, oh. because it's like words for me. And then um, – but then every now and again uh, it can be Irish men that's oh. creeping. Yeah. And yeah, if they yeah, are yeah, an yeah. author – and Irish, it's like the cream on the Irish coffee. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, ah, would you talk wordy to me? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, like, in terms of the indices of the Venn diagram, if they are an, an author and Irish, so who is at the centre? Obviously, Oliver Jeffers. Oliver oh, Jeffers. okay. Come on. Yeah. What, what, what have you chosen? So I've actually not chosen Oliver Jeffers' book because I think he thinks I'm stalking him anyway. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the book extra I'm going to read is for two reasons. Number one, I just happened to be Googling Chris O'Dowd, you know, from the IT crowd and Bridesmaids. And I, 
I found him doing a Jackanory moment reading this book. Now, obviously, everybody loves Chris O'Dowd, or I do, or whatever. I'll just think, right, well, I now love this book. Um, so you can go and find Chris reading this. And the book is Arnie the Donut. And then, oh. it, and of course, I'm going to read it after uh, I was telling you about the outrage from the pupil who was going to put Krispy Kreme donuts in there, you know, in the room 101 because they were a ripoff. Definitely. I nearly sent you a picture from the uh, service station going, glazed bagels. (laughs) Just do one. What, £2.48? Not having it. So um, I just want to tell you about Arnie just for a moment. Oh, I'm going to show you Arnie here. I hope you can see him. Arnie is a glazed chocolate donut, very chocolatey, and he has colourful sprinkles and he's very expensive. And he's made uh, courtesy of um, the illustrator and writer, uh, Laurie Keller. He's made in Downtown Bakery, the home of the best donuts around. I like it. Do you get it? Uh, I get it, I got (laughs) some. (laughs) it's a really kooky left field book and mr bing buys arnie and guess what they bond really quickly uh arnie's expensive um and then mr bing just feels he can't eat him but they start riffing and writing a list about what arnie the donut can do instead so um this is uh arnie's list the title things mr bing can do with me instead of eating me do you need a ballroom dance partner mr bing no i don't dance arnie you could use a personal fitness trainer Mm. no i'd get too sweaty (laughs) i could be your chauffeur no but you can't even see over the steering wheel i'd make a really great bodyguard who listen who would you protect me from a cookie (laughs) all righty mr bing i've tried my best have you have you got any ideas well yes i've I've got a few and I, i think you might like some of these um my list Things I can do with Arnie the donut instead of eating him. I could use you as a pincushion. Oh, I don't like that. It'd be too painful. <clears throat> How about an air freshener in my car? Ooh. How about not? Don't fancy that. <laughs> You'd make a very fine paperweight. Mm, it's a bit boring. Oh, I know you can be a doorstop. Try again. But there was nothing else on Mr. Bing's list and they were both completely out of ideas. And Arnie and Mr. Bing were exhausted and they felt terribly disappointed. And after a few minutes of awkward silence, Mr. Bing finally spoke. I'm sorry, Arnie. It is clear that we can't agree on anything for you to do around here. This is very difficult for me to say, but I think it's best that you found another home. 
okay, said Arnie, fighting back the tears. I'll just be on my way then. Um, please, can I have this napkin to pack up any loose sprinkles? <laughs> oh, it's a tearjerker, Heather. It's a tearjerker. Is that where you're going to leave it? You're not going to tell yeah. me what happens? No, <gasps> I'm lucky. You can watch Chris O'Dowd for yourself. I'll send I, you the link. I, I will. I will. <laughs> so have you got a good week ahead, Jane? Oh, hey, um, after this podcast, I'm going off to Enfield in mm-hmm. London. That's nice. And um, yeah, do you know what? Sometimes I don't look too far ahead in my diary because I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. <laughs> so that's all I can remember is the truth of it. Um, have you got some time off? It's half term here. I've got, week. yeah, yeah. I'm doing some time off um, and I'm, I'm, I'm an, I'll tell you where I am. I'm at St. Joe's Rugby Festival and I'm going to have a lot of drink there in the rain and the storm and I'm going to enjoy a lot of rugby, a lot of school rugby. Uh, so that's exciting. And a lot of me rugby mums. Yeah, all good. Ah, good, good. Well, it's my birthday next week. Oh, is that a hint that you want a present? No. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm going away for a night at a lovely hotel. Oh, um, darling. With Mr. Reading Rocks. So um, I'm looking forward to that and a nice bit of relaxing and um, self-care. So hopefully all our lovely teacher squad listeners, whether they've been on half term or going on half term, have um, some nice restful time. And whatever their self-care looks like, sand in your toes or tidy toe cuticles. Yes. I I wish it for all of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Other than if you're in Leicestershire and you're going back. Sorry, folks. But other uh, than well, that, I hope you right. had a good one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Shall we say goodbye? Yes. It is Heartburst from Jane and Big Love from Heather. See you next week, everyone. See you next week.